The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Jesse, my brother, uh, really important. Uh, we talked about membership. Um, we talked about a lot of different things. And uh, he had a baby, so he was gone. So we'll let, it, we'll let it go this time. And he has a cool beard. His wife had a baby, and he was responsible for very little of it. Um, sorry. <laughs> it's a bad start. Okay. Uh, let's pray, guys, and, and then we'll, we'll, get, we'll get rolling. Father, um, God, once again, I just come before you really in need. God, we want to hear so, so bad from you tonight, Lord. We want to hear you speak. We want to feel your presence, to know that you're here. God, as we dive into this topic, Lord, that I feel like uh, so ill-equipped to even talk about, um, would you just give us grace tonight? God, would you fill this place with truth? Lord, would you push me aside? And would you speak in the voice of the shepherd that we all know? And that, that, that quiet voice, that patient voice, that strong voice, Jesus, that, that we all need to hear tonight. God, we long for that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I have a great relationship with my wife. Um, just so you guys know, it, it, it's, it's great. Here's kind of what our relationship looks like. So first of all, you know, I let everybody know that I'm married. So I have, you know, I have a bumper sticker on my car, Facebook says married, things like that. You know, just, just so everybody knows because I want everybody to know I'm married. Second of all, we, we do this great thing where we talk for about 15 seconds a day. We don't really do more than that because I just could get a little awkward. And honestly, I just don't have a lot of time. Um, to talk to her, you know? So we, we talk for about 15 seconds a day, um, and usually it consists of me, you know, I'll go on driving or th- something, and I'll, I'll call her really quick, and I'll just say, hey, babe, you know, can you pay that bill? Or, hey, uh, don't forget about dinner, you know, just quick 15 seconds, like, hey, can, just asking you usually for something. Um, and that's pretty much the bulk of our communication. Uh, we don't really talk about our feelings. So we don't really share, you know. It's just, I just don't really like doing that. It's not really, not really something I, I enjoy Uh, doing, but we do hang out once a day for about an hour, which is great. Um, We hang out at a place with a lot of people, and so sometimes we don't really connect, like sometimes like, you know, uh, we don't even really talk during that hour, but I'm there, you know, and she's there, and we're together, and so it counts, right? Uh, You know, and honestly, even if she wasn't there, I'd probably still go, because it's a cool thing, and I like being there and stuff, Um, but that's our time, and then we have our 15 seconds every day, and and things like that, and I mean, the reality is, and I've told her this before, I mean, like, you know, I, I, I love you, babe, but I just... I have all this other stuff going on in my life, and, and, and like, there's a lot of important things, and I can't, I can't give too big of a piece of pie over to her, because then I wouldn't have time for other things, you know, and she's told me before, like, oh, I really wish you'd make me number one in your life and stuff, and I'm like, man, I just don't have time, like, there's too much stuff going, there's too much stuff going on, so, you know, but we have a good relationship, yeah, we love each other, and e- even though, like, sometimes, you know, she probably wishes I would give more attention to her, like, she's gonna love me anyways, you know what I mean? Like, she's going to stay with me. I mean, she's faithful, you know, even if, I, uh, even if I'm totally, like, don't really connect. And people tell me, you should connect more with your wife. You should talk more to your wife. And I, and I just say, I, I just don't. I just don't have the time. And honestly, I don't want to be one of those weirdos, right, that's, like, like obsessed with my wife. Like, I don't want to be the guy that's, like, talking about my wife all the time and having, like, dialogue all the time. That would just be weird. And people might think I'm weird. And so, for that reason, why fix something that's not broken? How good is my relationship? <laughs> It sucks. <laughs> I love that answer. It's horrible. No one in their right mind could sit there and listen to me talk about my relationship, which is completely fake, by the way. Um, and I don't, I don't have a sticker. I don't have a bumper sticker that says, I love my wife. I should get one. I don't even have Facebook. So it really is a lie. Um, no one could sit there and, and tell me that that's a healthy relationship, right? No one could tell me that. Um, you, they would say, that's a dysfunctional relationship, and you're probably abusive, uh, in some way, for her to stay with you. I mean, well, how in the world do you have a relationship? How is that possible? Now, what's funny about that, as ridiculous as that sounds, it's pretty similar to how most of us live our relationship with God, okay? And you might think that's far-fetched, but think about it. Think about some of the things that I said. Um, okay, I, I talked to I talk to God about 15 seconds a day, here and there, just quick requests. Hey, I need a parking spot. Thanks, Lord. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, oh, I almost hit another car. Oh, thank you, Lord. You know, help me out there. Appreciate that, 15 seconds. And that's about it. We meet once a day at church, but we don't really hang out. I mean, we don't actually get close and talk because there's all these people, and I'm distracted, and I'm thinking about lunch, and then i got to go pick my kids up. And so we don't really connect at church, but he's there, I'm there, it counts. Twice a month, whatever, you know. 
Uh, th- these are the things that really are kind of similar to our relationship with God. And no one in their right minds would say that you can have a relationship without communication. Am I right? Like, no one would say that. If I told you, like I just did, that I have a healthy relationship with my wife, but we don't talk, you'd say, no, you don't. (laughs) You don't have a relationship with your wife if you don't talk. Part of a relationship is communication. Now, my question is, is how is it possible for us to have such bad communication with God? And some of us, and I've had so many seasons like this, some of us do many things about God, like some of us go to Bible studies and learn about God secondhand. We take in information about God and we do things for God. We listen to Christian radio, but when it actually comes down to the act of literally, physically talking to, connecting with God personally, we don't do that very often. Most of us, most of us, honestly, we don't. Why is that? How? Is that possible? This is the question I want to ask tonight, and I, and I want to look at Mark chapter 11. If you guys have your Bibles, flip over to Mark chapter 11. We're going to hopefully get some answers. So tonight, uh, spiritual disciplines, this is number four. We've done uh, an intro. We did meditation. Uh, we did Bible study, and tonight we're going to look at the topic of prayer. Um, now, this one was interesting. I, I, uh, I read quite a bit on this, a um, lot of different books on prayer, a lot of different chapters on prayer, a lot of different sermons. And there's so much out there on prayer. I mean, there's just a ton of resources. Um, there's tons of sermons. There's tons of books. And it's all really good. And so what I did was I started to put together this just really, like, um, orderly, practical, like, 12 steps to pray, right? <laughs> and I was going to preach it. And, and it, was, it, like, put a lot of work into it. And then God just basically said, throw it in the garbage. That's not what I want to say. Um, and I was like, okay. So... What I really want to answer and what I really want to ask through the text tonight is just this big question of why is it so hard to pray? Why is it so hard to pray? Now, if you guys are like me, it's a a struggle for me. It's something I've always struggled with. So if you're in Mark chapter 11, let me kind of set the stage a little bit for what's going on. This is one of my favorite stories, uh, not only in the book of Mark, but really in the whole Bible. Um, It was one of the stories that when I first read it, I was like, this is just straight up weird. Like, this can't be in the Bible. Um, but it's actually really cool. So here's, here's what happens, okay? So after three years of Jesus doing ministry all throughout Palestine, finally at the end of his ministry, they go into the capital city of Israel, which is Jerusalem, okay? Now Jerusalem is the heart of Israel, not only geographically, but it's the heart of Israel in spiritual sense as well. It's, it's, it's literally like the heartbeat of the nation. Even to this day, that's why there's so much tension there because it's such a, a religiously charged place. Jerusalem is the heart of Israel, okay? It's the capital of Israel. And not only that, it's where the temple is. So all of Jesus' ministry, all of the, the, the different miracles and all of the different places that he visited in Samaria and Galilee and all of these different places was all leading up to him going to Jerusalem, where he would eventually be, as you know, crucified, okay? All three years of his ministry leading up to Jerusalem. So in our story, Jesus has finally made his way into Jerusalem. It's just the first couple days of his time there. Now, when Jesus first gets in to Jerusalem, he goes to a very specific place, and that place is called the temple. Okay, now what made Jerusalem Jerusalem wasn't just the fact that it was the capital. It was the fact that there was something there. Like a crown on the top of a king's head, the temple sat on top of the temple mount in Jerusalem and was the pinnacle of the city. Everyone could see it. When you got within miles of the city, you would see the temple. And at this point in time, in Jesus' day, the temple wasn't Solomon's temple, because that one was destroyed. If you remember, it was Herod's temple. And Herod's temple was massive. One of the greatest archaeological um, wonders of the world, if you would. When we were there in Israel, um, it's underground now, but we looked at some of the foundation stones to Herod's temple, and one of them literally is the size of a full-sized bus. One stone, not put together, like literally one piece of rock hewn out. They don't even know how they got it in there. The temple was massive, okay? It was the focal point of Jerusalem, of the capital. And when Jesus chose to come to Jerusalem, it wasn't just any other day, it wasn't just any other week, it wasn't just any other season. Jesus chose to come to Jerusalem during a very important and very special time, and that time was called Passover, Okay? If you guys are familiar with Passover, 
the Jews once a year would celebrate basically that God delivered them from Exodus, from the hands of the Egyptians, and they would do that by sacrificing a lamb, sharing a feast together, and giving a sacrifice to cover their household. Okay, now, don't just picture like a few people sitting around. Jerusalem would have been inundated, packed, full with Jews from all over the nation. Once a year, they would all make their pilgrimage. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews and Gentiles would make their way into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So Jesus isn't just coming in at a normal time. He's coming in when things are crazy. There's people everywhere, and it's politically charged as well, because if you remember, Israel is under occupation by Rome, okay? So bringing all of these extra Jews in and, and having, having Rome be in control is going to bring some tension, right? It's going to bring some tension. So Jesus comes in at this time. He immediately goes to the temple. You guys remember when he first comes in, he's riding on a donkey. People are laying down palm branches. It's called the triumphal entry. When he comes into the city, he immediately, the first thing that he does is goes into the temple, okay, during Passover feast. Now, we have to picture this. To get the story, you have to picture this, okay? Jesus goes into what would be considered the court of Gentiles, the outer court of the temple, and when he does, he sees something that he probably didn't expect. See, this court of Gentiles was supposed to be where God's people, Jews and Gentiles, could literally commune with God and pray to God. It was the place where anybody could go. Whether you were Jew or a Gentile, you could go to the outer court and pray. The temple itself was a place created by God for people to commune with God. And as Jesus sets his foot onto the stones of the court of the Gentiles, his eyes aren't met by people praying. His eyes aren't met by people seeking God. His eyes are met by people being ripped off. Okay, now here's what's going on. People would come to Passover to bring a sacrifice. Just like when you go to a baseball game, okay? You get a hot dog and a foamy finger, right? Okay, a little more spiritual than that. But still, okay, everybody does it. And what Jesus steps into isn't what you would think of as a temple. He steps into something a little more like Disneyland. There's people everywhere, people selling things all over the place. It's like when you're walking through the carnival and some sketchy guy's trying to get you to pay $5 to throw a ring on a bottle and you know it's not gonna work. They're trying to rip you off. That's the scene here. Things are overpriced. Things are costing way more than they're actually supposed to cost. And what's happening is, is these Jews are coming all of these miles to come, uh, to come give a sacrifice to the Lord, and the people, the mafia, the, 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 the high priests, are literally saying, well, if you want a sacrifice to the Lord, it has to be to a certain standard. And guess what? Your animals don't meet those standards. But guess what? You can buy them from us at an extremely high price. Okay? How awesome. So you have the people in charge of God's temple where he's meant to meet with his people selling animals for an exorbitant amount that, that, that's way more than they're supposed to cost. And then not only that, their money is no good there. They have to exchange currency. So they're getting ripped off twice. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into. It would be chaos. Animals everywhere. Animal poop everywhere. People everywhere. Crooks all over the place. Not a place of prayer, not a place of peace, not a place of communion with God, but a house of thieves. And Jesus explodes. He absolutely explodes. Now, before we get to that, I want to explain why, okay? I want to explain why. Now, you guys know this, right? In the garden, okay, thousands of years before this story that we're looking at, God and man lived in the garden together. There was no separation, okay? There was no separation. There was nothing keeping man and God from communion, from communication. There was absolute clarity on man's part. God and man could understand each other, could talk to each other. It says that God literally walked in the garden with man. There was dialogue between God and man, nothing to separate them, okay? Man walked naked and unashamed. You guys know that this was the garden. Then something happened, right? The fall, Man chose sin over God and therefore was cursed. And as a result of the curse, among other things, was a separation between God and man. No longer could they walk and talk and be with God physically and commune with God. There was a separation, a wall between God, a brokenness 
man feels this urge now to try to ascend back to God, to try to get back to God and where he initially was supposed to be. Now, the temple was God's, not ultimate way, but one of God's ways of saying, by his grace, I'm going to reconnect with man. Does that make sense? Not the ultimate way, but one of the ways. By his grace, God said that through the temple and through the tabernacle, I will give a way, not the way, but a way for man to reconnect with God because man has fallen. So that's what the tabernacle was designed to be. Now, unlike the garden where man could just walk in peace and communion with God, the temple was different. The temple had walls. The presence of God was behind a thick curtain where only one man could go in. And that man couldn't go in and enjoy the peace and the presence of God. He went in with fear and with trembling because he knew his sinfulness and that the wrath and the holy indignation of God was dwelling over that tabernacle, dwelling over that temple, and could strike him at any moment. In fact, they would even have bells on the bottom of their uh, robes so that if the bells stopped jingling, they would pull the body out. Okay? This, is the, this is the relationship between God and man. It's severed. It's broken. In order for man to commune with God, he has to go into a tabernacle. He has to sprinkle blood on an altar in order to, to make any kind of prayer, supplication, request, praise to God because man has fallen from God. Are you catching, are you catching this? Now, the temple is a grace by God given so man can come back and be with God in a small sense, a small remnant of what the garden was like, okay? Now Jesus steps into the temple, this place that was intended by God's grace to reunite man with God, at least in a small way, and it's completely overrun. It's completely overrun by the people that were supposed to steward it, by the shepherds of the people, the high priest himself is making the money from the money changers in this court of Gentiles, and Jesus' heart, I would imagine, initially would break and then would turn to absolute anger. And Jesus, if you read the story, bursts onto the scene, right? Okay, now don't picture some ripped out, roided out dude just flipping tables. This is just a normal guy. Isaiah 53 says he's no one... He's just a normal guy, okay? Just normal. Doesn't say he, was, he wasn't like David. He wasn't tall and good looking. He was just a normal guy. Not only that, but he's poor. Not only that, but he's a carpenter. He's from Galilee, like Wairika or Hornbrook or Happy Camp, okay? Nowhere notable, okay? This rabbi comes onto the scene for the first time in Jerusalem, sees this, and explodes. Flipping tables, throwing chairs, Another book says that he has a whip in his hand and he's beating at and driving out the money changers with absolute anger. I thought about this earlier. If Jesus is God, okay, if you know Jesus, you know God, you basically are seeing here God's wrath contained within the limits of a physical body. Does that make sense? And lucky for them, it was. <laughs> because if it wasn't contained within the limits of physical body, they would be gone. Okay? Jesus is furious, and not in a sinful way, in a righteous way. He's furious because someone is coming in between the avenue that he has created for man and God to be reconnected, to be reunited, and he is absolutely heated. And not only does he drive them out, I love this, he takes control. He takes control. And if you look, if you Google it, okay, and you look at Herod's temple, the courtyard is not small, it's big. And a lot of people try to say, oh, Jesus just did it in the corner or a certain section. No, 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 I don't think so. I think he took control of that whole darn thing. And for a few days, he was able to preach and just basically took over, took control. So much so that, that the chief priests and, and the Sadducees decided they were going to have to kill this man because he was taking away their prophets. Okay? So that's the scene. That's what's going on. Now, why did Jesus explode like that? A few reasons. Number one, God desires to reunite in communion with us. Okay, God's desire is that he would be reunited in communion with us. So obviously, when someone's getting in the way of that, it's going to make Jesus mad. And God is clearly aware of the barriers placed between us and him, and his wrath is on anyone and anything that would affect this communion. 
Does that make, make sense? God does not like anything that keeps you from him. Doesn't like it. Okay, so if that's money changers, if that's religion, whatever, he doesn't like it. Okay, he does not like things that keep you from him in communion. So there's that story. And here's what I love about this story. This is where it gets interesting, okay? Just follow me on this. Mark does this really cool thing called sandwiching. I don't know if that's like the real name for it, but I'm just going to call it that, okay? Sandwiching. He, he takes a story, and then he, he bookends it on either side with another story that, in this case, happened at the same exact time. But the, the point of that sort of bread, if you will, on either side of the meat, is to really point to the, the reason and the point of the whole story. So if Jesus cleansing the temple is our meat, if you will, in this sandwich— on either side, there's some bread, okay? There's this other story on either side in chapter 11. And what I want to do with you is look at that really quickly. So look at chapter 11, verse 12. Now, the same day, okay, the same day that Jesus is climbing up to go cleanse the temple. So rewind the clock like three hours, okay? It's a few miles. The same day, it says in verse 12, chapter 11 of Mark, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. You guys have read this story before? And said to it, okay, can I just stop? Can we just meditate on something? Jesus is talking to a tree. That's kind of funny, right? Uh, just, I thought that was funny. Um, it's like Narnia stuff or something, right? Okay, Jesus is talking to a tree. <laughs> May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, what a bizarre story. Jesus is walking up to the temple. He's about to do work and drive out these money changers. As he's going, there's no 7-Elevens around, right? So he sees a tree. They go over to the tree. The tree has leaves on it, so obviously it would seem like it has some fruit. Oh, what do you know? There's no fruit. Well, it's not even in season. Jesus, like, was he, like, throwing a fit? Like, like, this is how God throws a fit? Like, you're cursed. No fruit ever again. That'd be like me walking into my kitchen, opening up my fridge, see there's no food in there, and I say, you're cursed, and the fridge is gone. I mean, get out of here. I hate you, fridge. I'm taking it out in the fridge because there's no food in there. It seems ridiculous, okay? And it makes a point, too, in Mark to say that the tree was not in season. So super interesting, super interesting. Here's a couple things about this, so. Here's a couple things about this. Number one, why would Jesus expect the tree out of season to have fruit? These fig trees, if you study them, these fig trees, even if they're out of season, okay, even if they don't have figs themselves, if the tree has leaves, which means it's alive, it's not dead, it's not a dead tree, if it's alive, it does have these little things called, no, these little nodules, okay? They're like, they're like little starts of what will become fruit at some point. And they're not the best thing to eat, but they have some calories, okay? And they'd be good enough to give Jesus a little fuel while they're walking, a little trail mix, right? So the fact that the tree had leaves means that it should have had these little nodules. The fact that it didn't have anything at all means the tree was barren, okay? Well, even still, isn't that kind of petty, the curse of tree? It just seems random. Seems a little weird. Here's what you have to understand, okay? Jesus knew what was going to happen, right? He knew what was going to happen. He knew they were going up to the temple, and they were going to see some crazy stuff, and Jesus was going to have to take control of that temple, as he did, flipping tables, all of that. And he wanted to take his disciples aside and give them an illustration of the deadness of that temple. And basically what he's saying is, look at this tree. It has leaves, Okay? It has leaves, it looks like it should be alive, and yet there's nothing on it. So therefore, it's pointless, it's useless. What he's saying in that, follow me, is he's saying that's the temple. That is the temple. It is the system by which to ascend to God and to commune with God that no longer works. It looks like it has fruit, but it doesn't. It has lots of leaves, Okay, there's people bustling through there, thousands of Jews coming in, buying lambs, sacrificing, all this stuff going on. The priest is in his robes, and the Pharisees are there. And it looks like there's fruit there, but when you get closer and you look at the branches, you see there's no fruit at all. It just looks like a lot of leaves. Okay, what does this have to do with prayer? <laughs> so, 
prayer for me is tough. I, prayer is the thing. Prayer is the thing for me that spiritually I've just always really struggled with. I've always really wrestled with. I've always had a desire to have a rich, deep prayer life, but it's really hard for me. It's really hard for me to pray. And here's some of the reasons. I, first of all, I get really distracted. <laughs> yeah, I just get distracted. When I try to pray, just things come up. I, I feel like I get distracted more trying to pray than I do in anything, when I do anything else. It's kind of weird. Sometimes I feel like I don't know how to pray. Sometimes I don't feel like I know what to pray for. Um, I mean, it's usually because I don't. I, a lot of times I end up just sort of vainly repeating um, things like regurgitated Christianese phrases, you know, which I know isn't authentic. It's an inauthentic prayer. Sometimes I get confused about how much my prayer really affects anything. Like, you guys ever thought about that? Like, God's sovereign, and he already knows what's going to happen. What's the point of praying? I mean, he already knows what's going to happen, so what's, what's the point? Sometimes I think, well, God already knows me. He knows everything about me. He knows every thought that I have, so what's the point of praying? Why, why would I do that? Um, I get attacked unlike any other thing that I try to do in the world when I pray. It's, it's crazy. And honestly, can, can we not, like, nothing makes us more uncomfortable than corporate prayer right? Like if I just so happened to be in like 20 minutes, 30 minutes maybe, said, hey, let's all break into groups and pray, if that happens. You guys would be like, ah. Some of you guys would be like, oh, cool, I pray all the time. But some of you guys, if that's, if that's uncomfortable, and I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Like, it, it, like, what do I say? What if that person next to me is better than me? Like, what if he's judging me because I'm using the word sanctification wrong? And do I need to use big Asian words to pray out loud? And should I pray for the guy next to me? I forgot his name already. Now I'm just going to call him my brother. And then he's going to know I forgot his name. Like, oh, man. You know, this is the th- it's awkward. Like, prayer is tough. Prayer is tricky. Dr. Richard Gaffin, I'm going to quote him quite a few times. He says this. He says, in prayer, we are ignorant not just of the right way to pray, but of what to pray for. And that is true not just some of the time, but all of the time. Paul the Apostle would agree in Romans 8.26. He says, for we do not even know what to pray for. He says, we don't even know how we should pray. Right? Pray, prayer is hard. I mean, all of us can just spout out things. All of us can just say things or, or regurgitate things or, or say the Lord's Prayer or whatever. But, but to have authentic and real prayer is challenging. It's really tough. And to make it even harder... Here's verses like this. Here's what James says about prayer in the book of James, one, six, uh, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. He says, but let him ask in faith. Okay, so James, come on, dude. Like, I gotta pray? That's hard enough. But now I gotta pray in faith? Like, what does that even mean? And how do I do that? With no doubting, he says. Not even an ounce of doubting. Can you pray without even an ounce of doubting? Can you? I can't. Not even an ounce, okay? Ah, oh, I just... Pray that my friend would be healed of cancer, cancer. No doubting at all. No doubting. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's hard. This is what James says. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro by the winds. But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Okay, get the weight of that. If I don't pray with perfect faith, I don't receive anything. Talk about pressure. I mean, it's, it's just like, how do I do that? How do I do that? Now, what does it have to do with the tree? Glad you asked. From a distance, guys, a lot of times our prayer lives really look like that tree. From a distance, our, our, our relationship with God really looks like that tree, okay? From a lot of, from a lot of like, you look from a distance, and yeah, yeah, I feel like I have some, some fruit there, but when you really get into it, a lot of times, there's not. And my original intent with this teaching, like I said, my original intent was to come out and, and, and to encourage you guys on to just to pray, just to tell you all the reasons to pray, to tell you how to pray, um, just give you, give you a bunch of stuff. And, and God, like, seriously tapped on my shoulder this week and was like, you just need to give them rest, okay? Um, I, always, I always talk about this. My, I, I feel like I had this big warehouse in my head, and that, and that warehouse is full of things that preachers once told me I should do. And I started doing them. And then I stopped. <laughs> and now it's just sitting in my warehouse. And, and, and all of those things are like weighing on me. You know what I'm saying? Like you hear a sermon about fasting, which you'll hear in a few weeks. 
you hear a sermon on meditation, you hear a sermon on uh, whatever, whatever it is, reading your Bible more, and these are all really good things, and they're all really important things, um, and we're going to talk about these things for, for a while here, but they, they tend to just kind of create dust in your warehouse, if you will. You just feel the weight of these things that you are supposed to be doing and you didn't do. And what I didn't want to do tonight is I didn't want to come up here and give you guys 10 more things. Okay, and what I really didn't want to do is I didn't want to come up here and give you guys more leaves on your trees. Okay, and what I mean by that is I don't want to give you more ways to rely on yourself. I don't want to give you more ways to make yourself pray more. That's not what I want to do. What I want to do is I want to give you guys the gospel. Because God's not really interested in your attempts at prayer. God is interested in authentic prayer. So the disciples could even pray right. And they couldn't even get it right. They fell asleep in the garden. Remember that? I mean, how do we, how do, we do this? Here's the good news. You're not the tree. Okay? Jesus cursed the tree. You're thinking, oh, no. That was my first reading of this. Oh, no, not again. I'm going to get cursed. Like, I, it, the, Sam's going to get there and tell me that if I don't pray more, then I'm the tree and Jesus curses me. That's not what this is saying. Good news, okay? It's not what this is saying. Jesus is not cursing the tree as a picture of what will happen to you if you don't pray more. Jesus is cursing man's system of religion. Jesus is saying, this temple thing, this pray in your own strength and pursue God in your own strength and try to dust all these things off in your warehouse thing, it's not working. It's not working. And so Jesus cursed that and said, I'm not just going to get rid of this temple system. I'm not going to get rid of this religious system that hasn't been working for thousands of years. I'm going to replace it. Jesus cursed the tree because he was going to replace the tree. Jesus said, enough with man-made systems of communing with God and getting back to God. Enough with that. I am the system now. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So when we talk about prayer, it's no different. If I sit up here to give you 10 reasons to pray that may be helpful, but you need no more reason than understand that God is God that he has made a way for you to pray. Here's, here's the good news, okay? Romans 8, 25. Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Can I say that again? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know what that's saying to you and I when it concerns prayer? Give up. Not give up praying. Stop praying. Stop trying to make yourself be spiritual. What Paul is saying is that you have a helper. Jesus died because the temple doesn't work. And now you're the temple. And now you don't go to the temple to pray. You don't go through religious hoops to pray. You look within where the Holy Spirit lives, who actually intercedes for you, who actually takes your groanings and, and, and actually translates your confusing prayers to God so that he can understand you. What that means is that we have the ultimate helper in our prayer life, and that's the Holy Spirit, waiting, ever waiting to simply reveal God to us through prayer. That's really good news. It starts by giving up and saying, enough of trying to do this on my own. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but there is a difference between praying when you're like, okay, pray, okay, focus, okay, pray, and when the Spirit has just taken over. Okay, all you Pentecostals in the room are like, yeah, Sam's gonna start speaking in tongues. Like, no, I, I'm talking about like when 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 God literally is praying through you, not you trying to like force yourself, pray the right things, say it the right way, use the right words, but no, the Holy Spirit has pushed you out of the way and is saying, 
I'm going to pray the depths of your heart through your mouth for you, and you can just listen. You guys ever experienced that? Have you ever prayed for someone, and the words are coming out, and you don't even know who's talking? You're like, I didn't even know that was in there. That's weird. Okay, that's because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and is there to communicate the deep parts of your heart that you can't get out to God. The Holy Spirit is your partner. The Holy Spirit is what enables you to pray, allows you to pray, gives you the freedom to pray. So the first thing, the first thing that we get when we give our prayer life over to God is number one, freedom. We get freedom in prayer. Freedom is, prayer's not a burden anymore when you get this, okay? Prayer is a burden when you say, okay, I have to sit here, I have to do this, I have to talk to God, I have to get the words out. It feels weird, it feels awkward. No, that's not the kind of prayer God wants you to live in. Now, yes, it may take some discipline. Yes, you may have to focus. The prayer God wants you to listen, the, the prayer God wants you to live in is free prayer. The kind of prayer where you say, Holy Spirit, I need you to dip your hand into my heart and help me communicate it to God because I want to share everything with him, even though he already knows it. It doesn't matter. The kind of prayer where you say, Holy Spirit, I need you to translate for me the stupid words that are coming out of my mouth because I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. You guys ever had that where you just don't even know what to say? You're just pouring, if you ever have moments of extreme emotion and you're praying to God, those are those moments. You're praying, but you don't even know what to say. Have you ever have a moment where someone gets extremely hurt or something really scary is happening and you just instantly leap into prayer and you don't even, you're not even, you're just like, this doesn't, I'm not praying anything that makes any sense right now. Okay, I'm not talking about tongues, I'm talking about just, I'm scared and I can't formulate a prayer that sounds theological right now, okay? The Holy Spirit translates that. You know that? The Holy Spirit makes sense of that and communicates that and stands in the gap for you. And what that means is that we have freedom in prayer. It shouldn't be strenuous. It shouldn't be scary, like, oh God, I have to pray in King James or you're not gonna hear me. Because <laughs> we all know it's only King James, you know? It's a joke. Um, you don't have to pray in King James. The Holy Spirit will translate into the these and thous for the Lord. It's good news. <laughs> I guess some King James people in here are gonna punch me. Uh, I love King James. It's freedom in prayer. Strength is made perfect in weakness. Here's just a couple more quotes by Richard Gaffin. He says, Our ultimate confidence is neither in our, con our convictions nor is it in our praying or the fervency of our prayer. Our confidence is in the indwelling intercession of the Spirit together with Christ's intercession. In intercessory prayer presents presented at God's right hand. What he's saying there, what I just mumbled through, is basically that we don't rely on ourselves to communicate to God. That the Holy Spirit is way better at that than we are. And we need to begin to ask Him. And we need to begin to invite Him. Holy Spirit, help me pray. Help me to know how to pray. Jesus said, one is coming better than I. See, when they asked Jesus, how do we pray? He told them, he gave them a model. He said, you can do it this way. But you know what else Jesus said? He said, one is coming greater than I, right? Holy Spirit is going to be in you, teaching you to pray every day, helping you to communicate with God. This is good news. This is freedom in prayer. He says, you and I are free as believers to be ourselves in prayer because we are not ultimately dependent on our own efforts in prayer. Our dependence is elsewhere. Amen? The second thing, the second thing is not only does God want us to pray and freedom. I want prayer to be a bondage. He wants us to pray in power. Okay, he wants us to pray in power. And this is the stuff that always confused me. How do I pray in power? Now, remember I talked about the sandwich? Okay, we looked at one of the pieces of bread. Let's look at the other one. So after Jesus cleanses the temple, they're walking home. And as they're walking home, his disciples say, hey, Jesus, there's that tree that you cursed, right? Let's look at it. Verse 20, chapter 11, in Mark. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, will, that what he says will come to pass, and it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now how interesting is this? And Jesus curses this tree as a picture of the temple, and then Jesus just goes crazy up there, and as they're coming back, they point out the tree, and, and you'd think Jesus would be like, oh yes, here's why I did this, and blah, 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 but that's not what he does. He never does what you think he's gonna do. Jesus like bursts into this whole like thought about prayer, and about power in prayer. He points to a mountain behind him, and he says, if you believe in God, if you have faith, you can move that mountain. Okay, it seems random. Why is he talking about a mountain when they just pointed out a tree? Here's, here's what Jesus is doing. Follow me on this. Jesus is contrasting. He's saying you can have prayer like this, pointing to the tree, that looks like it has leaves, but has no fruit, has no power. You can live a life of prayer that looks great, but means nothing. Or you can live a life of prayer that moves mountains, okay? And the difference maker in that is faith. The difference maker in that is how much you make of God. How big is your God in your hearts? The prayers that are rooted in our own faith ultimately end up looking like a tree with no fruit. Here's the good news, okay? Here's the gospel. Since when does God ever limit himself by you, okay? Some people might disagree with that, but I'm pretty sure if God limited himself because of my faith, I wouldn't even be saved right now because I'm pretty sure I didn't have a whole lot of faith when God reached down and saved me, okay? Let me, let me, let me give an example. I heard this story earlier. It was so good. D.A. Carson was talking in a sermon I was listening to, and he was just talking about this hypothetical conversation uh, that, that might have taken place, okay, in, in uh, uh, the Passover in Exodus. You guys remember the story? Plagues have been going on, all this stuff's going crazy. Locusts, and frogs, and blood in the water, and just, I mean, it's just insane. And the Jews are kind of just like taking all this in, like trying to figure out what God's doing. And he gives this hypothetical conversation between two guys. We'll say, you know, Mr. Green and Mr. Blue, whatever. Um, one, one guy turns to the other and he says, hey, did you hear about this last plague? Supposedly this death angel is going to fly over and, and take the firstborn of every house. And, yeah, and the other guy says, yeah, I heard about it, I heard about it. Um, yeah, we're good. You know, I put the blood on the doorpost, both sides, we're good. And the other guy responds like, yeah, but are, I mean, aren't you kind of freaked out about that? I mean, like, this has been crazy. I mean, God's been doing all these crazy things and miracles and frogs and locusts, and now he's saying he's going to take our firstborn. I mean, you have three kids. I only have two. I mean, what if he takes my kid? And, and the other guy kind of responds like, yeah, but you put the blood on the doorpost, right? And the other guy's like, yeah, but I'm just freaked out. Aren't you freaked out? <laughs> the other guy's like, no, not at all. So one guy just totally, totally believes that this blood is going to cover their house, and the death angel's gonna, the other guy, he still put the blood on the doorpost, but he's a little freaked out, okay? Now let me ask you guys, now think about this, okay? Let me ask you, which one of those guys would the death angel pass over their house? Which one? Both of them. Both of them. Because it has nothing to do, it has absolutely nothing to do with, with how much faith that person put the blood on the doorpost. All that matters is that they put the blood on the doorpost, okay? That's the gospel. It doesn't matter, okay? One guy did it with absolute assurance. The other guy did it, and he was a little worried, but he still did it. The power is not in the person's faith. The power is in the one that the faith is placed in. That's the gospel. If everything was up to your faith, nothing would happen, okay? Now, wait a minute, Sam. Doesn't it say that if you have faith, you'll move mountains? Doesn't it say that? Isn't that confusing? Isn't that sort of go against that? It's not your faith. It's the faith that's within you, planted there by the Holy Spirit. Because guess what? I don't have enough faith to move mountains. And if God is using my faith, we're not getting anywhere. But guess who lives in me? 
The Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does. It's not about how much I believe, it's about who I believe in. And apparently it only takes a mustard seed if it's the right thing that you're placing your faith in. It's the object that your faith is in. So, let me just, a few concluding thoughts. What do we kind of do with this? Number one, cry out and admit your lack of faith. Okay, this is the whole point, the whole heartbeat of this teaching. And if it's confusing, I apologize. But the whole heartbeat of this teaching is that we have to start in prayer by admitting that we can't do it. Okay? Not by just saying, well, I gotta try harder, I gotta think clearer, I gotta do it more. No, start by admitting that you can't do it. Start by admitting that you need the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, that's when things happen. Jesus tells a story of two men going in to pray, right, before the Lord. One of them lifts his head up to heaven and he says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this guy next to me, okay? Thank you that I'm not like him. Thank you that you made me to be a better person than he is. And then the other guy, Jesus tells this story, won't even lift his head to heaven because he doesn't see that he's worthy in any way of God's grace. And Jesus says, which one do you think went away justified? The one that didn't even lift his head because he understood that he was spiritually bankrupt, unable to do anything without the Spirit, unable to pray correctly, unable to fast correctly, to meditate correctly, to study correctly without the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It starts by getting that you can't do it in your flesh. You can't do it by your own strength. That's religion when you do. Christianity is the Holy Spirit working those things within you. So number one, cry out and admit your lack of faith. You guys remember when Jesus was up on the hill, the transfiguration's going on down below. There's a guy bringing his son who's demon-possessed to the, the disciples and they can't heal him. Remember that story? Jesus comes down and this guy comes up to Jesus. He says, your disciples can't, can't heal my, my son. And he says, Lord, if you can, will you, will you heal him? And Jesus replies almost like, if I can, if I can. He says, all things are possible for, for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said famously, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Our, our prayer life, a rich prayer life has to start there. I believe, Lord, but you gotta help my unbelief. I wanna move mountains, but I can't because I don't have enough faith but you can give me that. I don't have a big enough understanding of who you are, but you can change that. And the Holy Spirit is living within us and is working on that. That's good news. Help my unbelief. Number two, just a concluding thought. We need to see prayer as a means of knowing God. Prayer is one of the only spiritual disciplines in here that we'll go through that really is only a personal spiritual discipline. What I mean by that is Bible reading, meditation, all those kinds of things, those can be done in a way that you just are learning about God, but prayer is the relational discipline. It is the one that is purely communing with God, a relationship with God. Okay, now I don't know about you, but knowing God's pretty important to me. Not just knowing about God, but knowing God personally. One of the most sobering verses, Matthew 7, 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. Guys, prayer is so important because it is how we know God relationally. Just know about God, not just get our theology dialed in, not just have good doctrine, but that we know him. He knows us. That's why prayer is important. It's so important. And then lastly, I'll just say this before we move on. Watch prayer change your life. Watch it change your life. Something just as simple as my, my wife and I, maybe six months ago, decided that we were going to pray together every night before we go to bed. Just something as simple as that, just five, ten-minute prayers, has completely changed the way that we connect. Just, just got us on the same page. Just deciding this, this week, even, that I'm going to spend a chunk of time in prayer has completely changed, has completely changed my walk with God. He brings things out in me through prayer. He reveals things to me through prayer that never would have come out. It's just incredible. incredible. Watch God change your life through prayer. So, 
Hopefully that all makes sense. And I'm going to do the thing that's going to make everybody super awkward. I really want us to pray together tonight, okay? And, and let me just give this a quick intro. And, and Aaron, if you want to come back up, and we're going to have some just worship going. We're going to do two or three songs. I'll come up a couple times and give some direction. Guys, if you don't feel comfortable with this, I'll say two things. Number one, please just pray anyways. And number two, if you don't want to, no one's going to judge you, okay? But I would encourage you guys, okay, to be a Christian is to know God, okay? The person next to you is not going to judge you, I promise. Well, I think, okay? It's, it's, it's not about sounding super Christian-y. It's not about saying the right things, okay? It's about being open and honest. And this is important. Even though this may cut the attendance of Wednesday nights, I don't care. This is important. This is what the church is supposed to do. The church is here to edify itself, to encourage each other. If we're not encouraging each other, then we might as well just go home. So you guys, let's pray for each other. Let's pray with each other. Let's be the body, and let's invite the Holy Spirit into this room. So here's what we're going to do. If you guys break up into groups of two, three, even four, it's totally okay to pray with whoever you came with. That's fine. Again, if you don't want to, you can just worship the Lord. That's fine. But we're going to spend the first few minutes, maybe the first song, and we're going to just praise God. Okay? And what we're going to do, how that is, we're just going to go around your circle, and you're literally going to just give prayers of praise and thanksgiving for who God is, for what he's done, for how he's been faithful, for what he's been faithful in, okay? And just however many times you want to pray in your circle, I'll come back up, we'll give some more direction, and we'll go from there, okay? Let's do it. I'm going to pray. God, please be with us now as we break into groups. Uh, Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be here working over time. Lord, that you would be in our hearts bringing prayers to well up out of our mouths. God, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for, but Holy Spirit, you do. So may we rely on you now, God, and may we have a mighty time of prayer, Father, as we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's do this, guys.